9. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You may be seated. It's our practice here to take a few minutes to meditate on God's word. Good morning. You want to keep your Bibles open there to page 809. Matthew chapter 4, we'll be going through verses 1 through 11. Looking at this conversation that Jesus had, not with man, but with the devil. Kind of different from the other conversations uh, we've looked at. But I want you to pay uh, a special attention, not just to the words Jesus uses, but the experience that Jesus undergoes and what it might have uh, to teach us this morning. Now, if you were going to walk into the Kennedy house uh, sometime this fall, probably on a Saturday afternoon, and I hope you do, um, as soon as you come in, you're going to be uh, overwhelmed by a glorious smell. And most likely, that smell will be something uh, that my wife, Shauna, is cooking. And more often than not, in the fall, because we make a lot of soup, the smell that you will smell when you come into our house is our homemade chicken stock. Uh, because we love to make soup, and the secret to a good soup is a good broth, is a good base. But really good chicken broth is like super, super expensive. You want to get like the really good stuff from like Fresh Market or Whole Foods or something. So we found out that if you just have like, I don't know, a rotisserie chicken carcass laying around and a couple vegetables, you can make really, really good chicken broth. Uh, and so the process goes like this. Uh, you take all the vegetables, all the bones, all of these leftover kind of garbage bits of meat, and you put it into the pot, and you apply heat and pressure over time. And when you're done applying heat and pressure over time, you've got two things. One, you've got all this garbage. You basically got these leftover pieces of vegetables that don't have any flavor or nutrition left in them, and they're just kind of like wilty and gray. You've got uh, the, the kind of grease and the oil that you have to skim off the top of the broth, and you've got the bones and the kind of tendons and stuff of the chicken. You got a lot of gross stuff left over. But you also have delicious, nutritious even, flavorful chicken broth that's useful and good for making all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things. But I want you to notice the same process, heat and pressure over time, brings out both this awful junk that you just want to throw away 
and then this really useful, beautiful, tasty broth. Now, in the Bible, temptation is kind of like the process of making chicken stock. It's this process over time where God applies pressure or he allows someone or something else to apply pressure to your life over time. And that pressure can squeeze out one of two things, fruits of righteousness and holiness and patience, all the good stuff that we want to see in our lives, or it can squeeze out the junk, the bones, the mess, the stuff that we don't want to see in our life. Uh, and what's interesting is, is in the Bible, the same word, perazzo is the Greek word, uh, it, the same word is used to describe the process of God testing his people and also the process of uh, Satan or human beings or evil forces tempting God's people. Now, when God is perazzoing his people, he's refining them, he's drawing the impurities out of them to make them more glorifying to him. And this is a healthy but a difficult process and it has a good intention on God's part and a good result. But when Satan does it, when the forces of evil do it, and make no mistake, they're real according to the Bible. Uh, Satan is real, the forces of evil at work in the world and inside our own hearts are real. And when we undergo a test, a perazzo, a trial, a temptation, from their perspective, that same word is used to describe uh, people being trying to, to be tempted or trapped uh, or tricked into sinning, to cause them to fall, to lose faith, to make a wreck out of their lives. And so translators look at the same word and they'll translate it as either a test or a trial, if it's coming from God with good intention, with a good result, or as a temptation, if it's coming from evil, with an evil intention, an evil result. And so the point is, I want you to see that sometimes a test from God and a temptation from the forces of evil feel the same. In your life, they both feel like pressures being applied to you over time, and it's squeezing stuff out of you. But the difference between a test and a temptation is that one is intended to produce this, the fruit of sin and death, and the other is intended to produce holiness, joy, and life. And so I want you to see that in the Bible, it says that God sends tests into our life to refine us, to draw out the good stuff, and to raise the garbage to the top, not so he can point at it, but so he can skim it off and make you more useful to him. And that we have an enemy who desires that those same trials, those same tests would be used to draw up all the corruption within our hearts so that he could take advantage of our weakness and do damage to the kingdom and the cause of God. And what makes the difference between a test and a temptation is how we respond to it. We all, even if you're not a believer in Jesus, we can all acknowledge this, that you come to seasons of life, you come to situations where it feels like you're pressed, where it feels like you're under pressure, and that you know either good is going to come out or all the worst parts of you are going to start showing themselves. And so how can you pass the test of temptation? How can you pass the trial of temptation when the pressure's on, when the heat is on? How can you stand under the pressure? To answer that question, I want us to look at Jesus how he stood under temptation, how he passed the test of temptation in the desert, how he battled Satan's tricks, how he responded, how he faced the temptation. 
And I want to make the case that Christ actually defeats temptation, not by some kind of miraculous power. He doesn't call down angels, right? He, he doesn't um, turn back time to give himself a second chance. He doesn't transfigure himself to scare Satan away. He actually battles temptation and defeats temptation using really ordinary tools that are available to you and me, using the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. So we're going to see that Satan attacks Jesus's faith. He tries to tempt Jesus to doubt God's word in three different directions. And I want to just notice before we jump in where this happens, because this is, pre this is pretty important. Uh, if you're looking at Matthew chapter 4, just look back over to uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and we'll see what happened right before. Right before Jesus is tempted, it says in verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, you know, two beholds, that's, we got to pay attention, behold, a voice from heaven, God speaking audibly from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. And then it says, chapter four, verse one, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You have to see that the temptation of Jesus happens right at the beginning of his ministry. It's before his public ministry. And this is intended by Satan to be a temptation to throw him off course to distract him from his calling. But it's intended and allowed by God to be this moment where Jesus, where he proves his strength, where he declares his victory, even here at the beginning of his ministry over the forces of sin and evil and death. And it's happening not before God claims him as his own, not before Jesus hears the affirming words of God that you really are my son. I really do love you. It happens immediately afterwards. So the first angle of temptation as Jesus is tempted to doubt those words of God that he heard in his baptism, the first angle of temptation that Jesus faces and then also we face, we're tempted to suspect how God provides for us. And you'll see Jesus leverages uh, or Satan leverages Jesus's physical needs to doubt God's character. Now look, look at his words here. Uh, Satan is looking at Jesus's current circumstances and he's reading them back into God's word and he's tempting Jesus to make conclusions about God and who he is based on Jesus's situation, his circumstances. Verse one, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. How hungry was he? He was as hungry as any human being would have been after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Because remember, Jesus is fighting temptation as a man. He's undergoing these trials in the deserts as a human being. And so he had, to be, he had to suffer and be tempted in every way like we would be. So he's battling temptation as a man. He's as hungry as a human being would have been after being in the desert. And at that point of weakness and vulnerability, that's when Satan comes. And he says, if you really are the son of God, I mean, if you're the son of God, I mean, that's what God said, right? If you're the son of God, why don't you just command these stones to become loaves of bread? And listen to what Satan's doing. He wants us to suspect God because of our circumstances. He wants Jesus to doubt his sonship. He wants to doubt God's fatherly care. And listen to what he does. 
He's wanting Jesus to doubt the word of God that was pronounced on him at his baptism. Doubt is the lever of all temptation. It's, it's where Satan gets a grip on your life and tries to pry you away from God, his character, and his word. And listen to this. He wants us in temptation to reason from our wants to shoulds. He says, I want food. You want food. Therefore, you should have food. You want something. Therefore, you should use any means available to you to take it and grab it, no matter what God says. If you want something, you should have it. Sin happens. All sin happens this way when a want, when a desire becomes a demand. When it becomes something that we say, you know, I, I want respect. A good, a good desire. I want to be respected. And when people don't respect me, I demand it. I fight for it. I insult them. I put them down. So I get my respect. I wrench it out of them uh, any way possible. I want pleasure. And when pleasure's denied me, I'm going to take pleasure uh, for myself, no matter what God says, through whatever uh, avenue is available to me. Sin happens when a desire becomes a demand. And we are always tempted to do this. Anytime when we're tempted to look at our circumstances and then read our circumstances back in to God's character. When we say something like this, because this tragedy happened, therefore, God must not be who he says he is. Because I'm struggling with big problems in my life. Uh, because I'm not as continually victorious as I would like to be in my Christian life. Because I read the Bible and, and um, it seems like it's hard to understand sometimes. Or uh, because my friendships or my relationships or work isn't going the way I want to. Therefore, God must not be who he says he is. And I must not be who his word says I am. Very careful. We have to be very careful with this. It's very, very tricky. Reading from our circumstances back into God's character, that's the logic of Satan. It's the logic of hell. Instead, what Jesus does is he reasons from Scripture to his circumstances. Satan says, if you really were the Son of God, if God's word really, really was true, then you shouldn't be hungry. You shouldn't be suffering here. You should be able to just satisfy every desire you have. That's what a son of God would do. That's what a king would do. And instead, this is what Jesus says. And you can almost see the process in his mind as he's reasoning from scripture to his circumstances. He's saying to himself, okay, I am hungry, really hungry, 40 days in the wilderness hungry. I also know that God has said I am his son, his beloved son whom he loves. And God has shown over and over again throughout scripture that he knows how to provide for his people. So, let's think. And Jesus kind of reasons back. He reaches back into his knowledge of the Bible, and he remembers another time when God's chosen servants, his chosen people, were in the wilderness and they were hungry. And so he kind of brings up, out of his memory, Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses is speaking over to the Israelites. He's, he's reminding them how God took care of them and provided for them in the wilderness. Moses says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 days in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, miraculous bread from heaven, which you did not know, your fathers didn't know, so that he might make you know 
that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses is saying, don't you see how gracious God has been to you? Don't you see how God has provided for you? And Jesus hears Satan say, God's not providing for you. God isn't caring for you. And Jesus says, that doesn't sound right. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 8 back to the devil. He remembers the word of scripture and he quotes it back to Satan. And you'll see every single time Satan says, listen to me, listen to my words. (laughs) And Jesus says, listen to my father's words. Here's what the Bible says, liar. (laughs) And so he speaks the truth to the lies of the devil. And as he does so, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See what he's doing? He's saying, man does not live by bread alone. I'm man. (laughs) I'm a human being. He's saying, human beings don't live by bread alone, and I'm a human being. Not just a human being, but he is truly, fully a human being with human needs. But man doesn't just live when his physical needs are met. He doesn't just live by bread alone. Our lives as people are sustained by much more than satisfying our physical desires. We're not just bodies that need to be fed and cared for. We're we're souls also that need to know God, that need to be related to him, that need to find themselves in his hands and recognize his fatherly care for you. So Jesus is saying, I have deeper needs that are being met even right now by God than you even know about Satan. As one uh, translator, uh, one commentator put it, he said, a life sustained by food alone is a very poor life indeed. Jesus knew that. He recognized it. And he said, Satan, I, I have ways of being fed that you don't even know about. So Satan, kind of uh, rebuffed, deflected, tries another tactic. And this really shows how crafty he is. He can speak to our appetites. He can tempt us according to our physical desires, but he can also appeal to our religious desires. And so he says, oh, you're going to quote the Bible. Oh, you believe in the word of God. Obviously, you're a very religious person. Obviously, you you intend to live by God's word. You're, you're, You're feeding on God's word. So why don't I quote God's word to you? And what Jesus is going to do when he quotes God's word, instead of causing him to doubt God's provision, he's going to try to get Jesus to manipulate God, to force God to prove his word, to force God to act. This is the second angle. Instead of relating to God by simple faith in his promises, we, like Jesus was, are tempted to demand that God prove himself. And again, just reminding you, Satan takes this religious angle with Jesus. Just look. Look where he does, look where uh, the temptation takes place, starting in verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the holiest place in the holy city. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. I'm going to quote the holy scripture to you. He will command his angels concerning you. So the devil is going to make an unholy suggestion, but he's going to do it in a holy-sounding way, in a holy place. Uh, He's appealing to Jesus' religious impulses here. And this is important for us to notice. The devil is just fine showing up at a worship service, uh, quoting scripture. But what he's interested in doing when he's there is twisting the words of God, 
pushing the use of the Bible to make it say what it really doesn't, and pushing God's people to do faithless acts in the name of faith, to do things that seem like they're faithful, that seem like they really trust God because they're remarkable, because they're impressive, but actually they reveal a lack of trust in God. So let's just look. This is his argument. Satan says, uh, God shouldn't just say you're his beloved son. I mean, that's fine for him to say it. God needs to prove it. Remember in the first temptation? You need to prove it. You need to prove you're the son of God. Now he's saying, God needs to prove you're really the son of God. You have faith in God's word, right, Jesus? You have faith in all God's word? Someone ever done this to you? And then they kind of take a random uh, bit of scripture out of context. Well, you believe the Bible's inspired, don't you? So this is what Satan's doing. And what's interesting is he actually brings out Psalm 91, which is a psalm, a messianic psalm. It's about Jesus. It's about the way God provides for his chosen people. It's, a way, it's, it's about the way God provides uh, for his chosen servant. Um, it says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You're not even going to stub your toe on a stone. God's going to take care of you so much. And he says, well, God's word says you're his son. Let's do an experiment. Let's test what he said. Let's see if his word is really true. And the problem with this test, the problem with these kind of experiments when you take scripture out of context, is that the logic is really flawed from the beginning. Uh, this is sometimes what, what happens when people ask you a question about God, but it's coming from kind of a non-Christian starting point. Uh, like if someone says, uh, can God make a burrito so big that he couldn't eat? Have you ever heard that one? Uh, or maybe a stone so big that he couldn't lift it. Um, so what, what you're doing is you're, you're trying to disprove something by, by posing um, an illogical situation. You're basically saying, can God, who is all-powerful, be not all-powerful? Right, so you're, you're posing a situation that's a logical uh, contradiction. And that's what Satan is doing. Uh, he's kind of, Jesus is trapped in both directions. So if Jesus jumps and God doesn't save him, then God ceases to be God because his word can't be trusted, right? But if Jesus jumps and God pulls out all the stops to save him, then God ceases to be God because he ceases to be all sovereign because he's, people can force God to act based upon what they choose, down here. God ceases to be God because he's just kind of running around at the beck and call of human beings, right? If we can force his hand in that way. So I wonder uh, for you, have you ever had someone ask you a question about God, asking you to prove your faith, and you got the feeling that no matter how you answer, you lose? I mean, sometimes the best thing to do is just not even engage in the conversation. I remember one time I was driving back from a, a concert in college with a friend of mine, who's not a believer, who kind of grew up as a skeptic, and his, his parents were really skeptical, and he was really smart, like a real intellectual guy, and we were really good friends, and he knew that I believed in Jesus, and he knew that I was kind of serious about my belief in Jesus. And so we're driving, and he says, well, so you believe, you know, if you die right now, you'll go to heaven. I'm like, yeah, I do. I mean, I don't want to die, but um, I do. And he's like, well, so why don't you just let go of the wheel of the car? I mean, if we die, you'll go to heaven. And then, uh, but if not, maybe, maybe God will save you. Maybe God will uh, protect us. And, and then he'll really prove himself. And then I'll know, you know, that, that he's real. 
And this is what I, I, really, I didn't know what to say. I was just kind of like flabbergasted. I thought, well, maybe I don't really believe in God. (laughs) What I should have said is I should have been like, I'm fine to die. I'm not fine for you to die, brother, because you need to know Jesus. Um, But I didn't say that. I just was totally... I was totally whipped, and I just sat there, and I was quiet, and, um, but really, there's no way to win a, a conversation like that. I mean, if you enter into it, you kind of, um, you, once you start going back and forth, you really start to lose the conversation, and I think what's interesting is Jesus never enters in with Satan. He never goes back and forth. He never says, but, but what about this? What about this? He just quotes the Bible to him. Satan says something and Jesus just shuts it down immediately. Satan uh, kind of posed this situation where you're supposed to treat God like Lois Lane treats Superman. You know how Lois Lane treats Superman? I mean, she just kind of does whatever dumb thing she wants. Um, she goes and she gets, you know, um, she's stuck in an earthquake or she gets captured by whatever, by whatever bad guy and she doesn't need to take care. She doesn't need to take any precautions because she knows... In the end, Superman's going to rescue her. So she doesn't have to take any kind of normal care over her life. She just kind of abuses Superman's care for her. Satan's saying, well, you can just treat God like that. Just do whatever you want. Take whatever, throw caution to the wind in your life. And then God will just kind of clean up your mess after you. Sometimes uh, this temptation comes to us in this form, where you've heard the gospel You've heard that God really does fully and freely forgive the sins of all who come to him through Jesus Christ. And then you hear this logic, well, if God's forgiven you, if he's forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future, why not just sin as much as you want then? Sin your brains out, because God's going to forgive you anyway, right? So why not just, just throw caution to the wind? Let him clean up the mess afterwards. In fact, it's already paid for, right? He, Jesus paid it all. Some people uh, said that that's what the Apostle Paul was teaching. And this is what he says in Romans 6, 1. What should we say? Are we to continue in sin so that God's grace, God's forgiveness might just abound? Should we just sin our brains out so God gets seen as more forgiving, more loving? He takes care of us even more? And the Apostle Paul says, by no means, which in my translation means, are you crazy? That's ridiculous. If you really have known the love of God, if you knew that he has freely, for, fully forgiven you at great cost to himself, why would you abuse his forgiveness? Why would you sin against such a wild and free and magnificent love? Why would you do that? Why would you test the Lord your God? And so Jesus hears the logic of Satan, and he remembers Deuteronomy 6, chapter 6 where the Israelites were in the desert and they're demanding, they're kind of complaining that God continuously provide miraculous things for them. And so they want some water and they're like, Moses, I mean, I mean, we're, we're here at another camp out place. Um, is God going to provide miraculous water for us again or what? And they're just kind of abusing God's care and his provision for them. And so they're demanding more signs from Moses And this is where it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, meaning you shall not force his hand. You shall not play around with God. You shall not try to manipulate God. 
Satan, in his kind of religious argument, says, hey, it's impossible to put too much trust in God. It's impossible to say that, you know, you know it's ridiculous to throw yourself off uh, th- this building because God's going to, you don't trust God enough if you're not going to do that. And Christ's answer is, if you're testing God, you're not trusting God. To expect God's gracious protection is one thing. To require proof from God is quite another. So once again, Jesus demonstrates unwavering faith in God's word. But then for this third and final angle, Satan's going to try something that I think is is really his most devious uh, trick. He tries it on Jesus, and, and, and we face the same temptation as well. His final angle is he tempts us to misplace the worship that belongs only to God. And the way he does that is he offers us bait. And then behind the bait, there's a hook. Look here in uh, verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. We don't know how he did this. We don't know if he physically kind of transported him there, if it was a vision. Uh, But we do know that what the word said is true. (laughs) Satan took Jesus to a mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he saw that they were good. They were glorious. They were attractive. Jesus, who was just baptized and, and proclaimed to be God's future king, the one who's destined to sit on God's throne, the one who loves the world so much that he died for countless men and women in those lost nations, those far-off kingdoms that Satan showed him, the one who wept over the city of Jerusalem when he looked at it because of how much he longed to gather the people there under his wings. This loving, compassionate man was shown all these glorious kingdoms of the world and all these people. And Satan said, you can have it all right now. I'll give it to you. Whether or not he could actually give it to him, I mean, who knows, because he's a liar after all. But he says, you can have it all right now. And best of all, no cross, no suffering. I can put it all into your hands and you don't have to work for it. You don't have to go the hard way. There's an easier road to claim your kingdom. And then, after showing the bait, (laughs) Satan kind of hints at the hook. He says, you can have all these things, you can have them right now, if, just, just one thing, you'll fall down and you'll worship me. You can have th- this glorious prize. And make no mistake, the bait that Satan offers to Christ and to us is attractive. I mean, he's not a fool. He's not going to offer unattractive, unappealing bait. He's going to offer pleasure. He's going to offer power. He's going to offer things that are pleasing to us and attractive to our senses. Remember Eve in the garden, she saw the fruit and she saw it was beautiful. It looked like it was good for food and he offers it. But then, hidden in the bait, there's the hook. And the hook is that you would bow down, that you would take the praise and the honor and the worship that is due only to God and that you'd shift it over, and you'd put it on Satan. That you'd take some, something, someone that isn't a God, and treat them like God. 
this hook, trading the worship of God for something else, that's really the temptation under every other temptation. And actually, it's what Satan is asking Jesus to do in every other temptation. He's saying, don't let God's word be the thing that rules you and is authoritative in your life. Pay attention to me. Focus on me. Listen to me. Don't listen to God. For each of us, anytime something in our life becomes so important that we want to grab it, that we want to take it, regardless of what God's word says, when we turn from giving the honor and the glory and the respect and the worship that belongs only to God and we put it in something else and we say, this is the thing I really, really need. What we've traded, we've given what only belongs to God uh, to a created thing and we've committed idolatry. We've took the bait and we're stuck by the hook. But Jesus, because he knows God, because, because he trusts God's promises and because his heart is filled with confidence in his father's love. I, I can just imagine that the, the, the words from his baptism are still ringing in his mind. He's going, I'm the father's son. He really loves me. He really is pleased with me. He's poured out his spirit and the spirit hasn't left me. The spirit's led me here and is remaining with me because his heart is so filled up, so furnished with the love of God and the joy that comes from knowing that he belongs to God. I mean, he makes short work of Satan's temptations and he fights false worship with the true worship of God. Jesus says, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And I just want you to notice two things about Jesus's words to Satan. First, they are scripture. Again, he's quoting Deuteronomy. But notice the force of Jesus' words. How are we supposed to fight temptation when it comes on us? We're not supposed to play around with it. I mean, 1 Peter says that the devil is a roaring lion. He prowls around looking to devour us. So you don't play around with a roaring lion. <laughs> uh, so the way Jesus responds is forcefully, effortfully, um, there's this uh, story about Martin Luther that when he was writing his translation of the Bible, he was stuck in this castle, the Wartburg Castle. And he would have this experience where he felt like the devil was tempting him. I mean, who, who knows? Um, but that was his experience. And I mean, what a key turning point in history. Who's to say that Satan himself didn't just as this other key turning point in history come down and try to personally deal with God's uh, servant, Martin Luther? And so he comes down, and, and Martin Luther describes this process of him writing, translating the Bible, and then hearing a knock on the door. And if you went to Wartburg Castle, you would see a stain on the door where Martin Luther would grab his ink pot and throw it at the door, <laughs> as if to say, you may not come in. We don't take temptations sitting down. We don't mess around with a prowling lion. And so Jesus forcefully, I mean, I imagine his words just echoed off the top of the mountain. He says, be gone, Satan. I think what's even more remarkable about that story about Martin Luther is um, first, you know, the forcefulness, <laughs> him throwing his ink pot against the wall. But then this is what he would say. Which is, which is amazing. He would hear um, 
this tempter, <clears throat> say his name. And he would hear the voice of the devil say, uh, is Martin Luther there? Knocking on the door. And he would throw his ink pot at the door, and this is what he would say. He would say, Martin Luther doesn't live here anymore. A man in Christ lives here. Be gone, Satan. Do you see what he's doing? I mean, sure, sure, he's, he's um, imitating the forcefulness of Jesus. But he's putting on the identity of Christ. He's saying, because I'm a person in Christ, because I'm included in him, Jesus was victorious over you and I will be victorious too. Now, this isn't a kind of like name it and claim it victory stuff. This isn't saying, I have some kind of power in myself. He's saying, Jesus is the one who is powerful. And because he is victorious, I, who am connected to him, will also be victorious. Notice the power of Jesus' words. When Jesus orders Satan to leave, Satan has to leave. God has given Jesus authority. And I think this is the interesting part. I mean, it's all interesting, but this is fascinating to me. Jesus had this power all along. Jesus had this authority all along. At any point during these temptations, which were, I'm sure, excruciating for him, he could have said, be gone, Satan, and Satan would have had to go. So why did he wait? Why didn't he do that at the very beginning? Why didn't he do that at the very beginning of his life? Well, the Bible gives us an answer. He had to suffer his whole life. He had to undergo temptation to the very end as a human so that he could redeem fallen humanity. He had to become fully, truly, completely human so that he ties up her humanity in the project of his redemption. And so that for the first time in history, when a human being goes out into the desert, and encounters Satan, encounters temptation. Whereas in the past, God's people have constantly failed. They failed in the garden. Jacob failed uh, countless times when he was tempted. Uh, Abraham proved himself faithless many, many different times. Moses proved himself faithless. He, di he, didn't, he wasn't able to come into the promised land. God's people failed the test and the first generation had to pass away in the wilderness. I mean, Satan was batting a thousand with God's people. And then finally, for the first time in history, a man goes into the desert alone, encounters the devil, and he walks back undefeated. The devil is conquered. And so Jesus... One, as a human. And he had to win as a human, Hebrews says, so he could be our faithful and merciful high priest. This is what it says in Hebrews 2. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God so he could make propitiation for the sins of his people. So he could take away the sins of his people so that he could make atonement for the sins of his people. And so that when we are tempted, 
we can call out to our great high priest. And it says in Hebrews, because he himself has suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. He's able to sympathize. He knows what it's like. He can never say God doesn't understand because he's God. How could he understand what suffering and temptation feels like? He understands. He knows. He's not just able to sympathize, though. He's also able to help those who are being tempted. We have someone who's actually able to help us, and we have resources available to us because Jesus didn't have anyone to call out to. He had to suffer on his own, in his own strength. And that's going to be kind of useless for us because we don't have much strength of our own to call upon, do we? But we do have the strength of Christ. So you can call out to Christ when you're tempted. You can claim protection from his strength. You can ask for help. You can ask for the Holy Spirit. And if you, acknowledging your own weakness, acknowledging your own dependence on him, you can actually make progress in the fight against sin and temptation. James says this, submit yourselves to God. Submit yourself to him. Find yourself in Christ. Trust in his strength. Despair of your own strength. And resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Because Jesus is our Savior, because he suffered in your place, he is our great high priest. He makes atonement for our sins, but not just as the priest. He, he doesn't just make atonement for your sins as the priest. He makes atonement as the sacrifice. Because the, the beauty of the gospel is this, is that Jesus crushes Satan by being crushed himself. Jesus wins a victory by losing. And because he went all the way down to identify with you and me in our sin, in our sickness, in our weakness, in our temptation, and he came out the other side victorious, we can trust in him and share in his victory. And so it's an appropriate day um, to celebrate communion. Uh, this is the time uh, of the Passover when Jesus um, was in the upper room with his disciples. And he's uh, about to be uh, given over, about to be betrayed, about to die, about to be crushed. And it says on the night when he was about to be betrayed, Jesus sat with his friends. And he said, this bread, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat it, won't you do this in remembrance of me? And the scripture says that he also on that same night took the cup. He said, this cup is my blood poured out for you. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul in 1 Corinthians says that whenever we eat and drink this, we're proclaiming Christ's, Christ's death until he comes. We're saying we believe that Jesus' death beat the devil, that Jesus conquered sin and death. And not only that, we're saying that we believe that he did it for us. 
So I want to invite you, this, is, this table doesn't just belong to Christ Community Church. This is for all of God's people. So if you have believed in Jesus, if you've trusted in his death for you, if you want to proclaim his death for you, then come forward. Uh, we have gluten-free bread if you need it. And you can come forward. The uh, ushers will dismiss you. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're uh, thankful that you sent your son to be truly human and to suffer and die in our place. Lord, for those of us who don't know what to think, don't know where we stand with you, uh, Lord, would you um, just give them grace to, to sit and think, um, to watch others go up and, and receive the elements. And, and Lord, would you speak to them? Would you uh, show them the truth? about who you are and what you've done for them. And Father, would they, uh, would they know you so that they could celebrate with us um, next month? We thank you for your generosity in providing for us. In Christ's name, amen.